I am super excited to have you back for another episode of Red Receipt. It's a deep dive into the how and why of the brands we love and the creatives behind them. From blueprints to launch day, customers as community, and the detours in between. Big lessons and easy listening. Red Receipt is hosted by Antidote, the email and SMS marketing agency by people who hate boring emails. Today on the podcast, our guest took an unconventional path from finance to the beauty industry. Julian is the CEO and founder of Super Ordinary, and he's on a mission to make the beauty industry accessible on a global level, connecting brands, creators, and consumers in an ultra-personal way that helps creators monetize and build their platform. Join us as we talk more about the beauty industry in the U.S. and growing in an ever-evolving digital-first marketplace. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Uh, where, uh, where are you from originally? Um, so I'm, my mom's Australian and my dad's Portuguese Chinese. Um, I grew up, I was born in Australia and, um, grew up in Singapore and Hong Kong. Um, I, fun fact, I have an identical twin brother. His name's Justin. Um, and, um, he's also, I would call an entrepreneur, even though I hate the word, um and he's he runs a company called watchbox which trades high-end secondhand watches and um yeah so we grew up there i'm one of three boys i have three teenage sons also and they all live here in in la that's awesome what uh what originally brought you to the u.s uh well geez i i've been coming to the u.s um I would say for the last 10 years, really. Um, I, I originally started my career in the US. I, in 1997, I started my career on Wall Street, uh, working at JP Morgan as a, a derivative trader. Um, so that was like the heyday I felt in Manhattan and New York, which was super fun. Um, and then I kept on coming back. I, I, I never really spent much time on the West Coast until 2013. Um, I kind of got excited and interested in the movie business at one point um and invested in a movie called point break um a surfing movie with keanu reeves <laughs> yeah that's insane well, yeah it was it was super cool but you know um it is there is an anticlimax to that because <laughs> i i i invested in point break two which was a point break one <laughs> and I, when i did it my brother was like isn't Patrick Swayze already dead? And I was like, oh shit. So um, my my movie, my movie investment career um, took a very sudden turn. That is so funny. Uh, what um what did you study in school? Like, how did you get into finance? Were you interested in finance before before you did that? Yeah, I I think um you know I grew up watching movies like Wall Street um boiler room um and i was always fascinated by the fast pace of the the financial markets like how these global markets worked and how you know um people could you know look at currencies or interest rates or equities and i was always fascinated by trading um and when i was at university i studied um economics and mathematics and um it really 
piqued my interest. Um, I started trading a lot during university, and this was when you were using dial-up modems and AOL and Compaq, and you know, I was trading options. And I think it was really, really interesting um, then. And then when I tried to get a job, I think I applied to 140 companies. I remember like sending out the same exact letter to it. 140 banks and I would look up their addresses online and and I got 140 rejections <laughs> um but eventually um I um got a job and um you know um I started trading and and did pretty well and eventually started my first hedge fund when I was 26 um so I had a lot of luck to get out of the banking industry early and um, start my own company. So I, um, ever since then, I've I've never worked for another another institution. What was it like starting a hedge fund at 26 years old? Yeah, it was it was really scary because I didn't even know what a hedge fund was. <laughs> um, essentially, all I knew was that you know there was, you know, this opportunity to actually go out and manage other people's money and you know, it's, it's not a secret, you get paid 20% of everything you make. Um, and I was like, wow, that's really interesting. If you have the confidence in yourself, and if you can make a million dollars trading, you can get paid $200,000. Um, but if you make 10 million, you get paid 2 million and 100 million, you get paid 20 million. So it was like this really interesting model where I thought, wow, you, you know, you're working so hard for these banks, but if you could do it by yourself, this could be a really exciting opportunity. So I, I went off and I did that by myself and um, started my own fund in Singapore um, and then quickly realized I didn't have any money to manage. So I learned very quickly, oh, you have to raise money. So I started learning the skill set of <laughs> going to people, friend, friends and family and seeing if, I, if they would let us, uh, would invest in my fund. Um, it was really scary. Um, you know, back in 2003, uh, 2002, um, no one really understood what a hedge fund was. Uh, there were very few funds in Asia, um, but eventually managed to build the fund and um, to a couple hundred million in, in, in assets. And, um, um, later next year, we got acquired by um, a very large large fund from the U.S., um, and I became a, a portfolio manager there. What was it like building the fund to that uh, level of assets under management? Like, were there specific um, areas of expertise that you felt like you leaned on that helped you build? Was it a gradual gradual learning curve over time in all honesty i feel like it's a lot of luck <laughs> um because i think um trading is it's all about timing and yeah. timing is really hard to predict for anything um who who's who's to know what was going to come around the corner and i think it was um you know so i, I owe a lot of it to luck because i think um, it was really hard, um, you know, to convince someone to give you their hard-earned money and put it into your account and for you to trade when you don't have much of a track record. It's very difficult. But um, eventually, you know, um, you know, people began to trust you and and look at your returns, and eventually, we we were able to grow. 
Um, so I think, you know, fund management and hedge funds, you know, um, it's, it's, a, it's a really competitive market. There are some great funds out there today. Um, but it was back then, it was like such a different world. Um, yeah. and, and I think what it, what it really opened my eyes to was it really encouraged me to think globally and think about, you know, it, it made me dream a lot in terms of like, what are these big ideas out there? Like, you know, what if scenarios, what if he built this project or what did he, if he did this? Um, and I think that's what trading is about. It's like thinking through like ideas, like great ideas and how do you express them? And sometimes you can express them through equity, sometimes through options. Sometimes it's by building a skincare company, whatever it is, like, it's all about, you know, building a view and then sticking to it. Did you have a view on, uh, like in terms of timing being right, did you feel like you had uh, an inclination that the timing in that market was just that moment in time and that you were going to ride the wave of it? Because I feel like you're back. I, I don't know your full background, but it seems like you've had success in very different ventures in some ways. And Sure. I imagine that's like partly timing, timing those, those yeah. motions, those motions. I think the view was that, you know, Asian markets were going to continue to grow and that as, you know, GDP per capita grows, the consumer would spend more money on, you know, certain products and assets and, and upcycle and consumer upgrade thesis those are the types of you know views i had and then how you would express them over time is buying equities that expressed you know the consumer angle or um currencies would appreciate because they're growing it you know the, these underlying markets are growing very quickly so there's all these different ways you can express you know a, a similar correlated view but generally i was a very directional trader so wasn't really tra trying to tra trade India versus Singapore. It was very much more along the lines of the Asian complex would, you know, appreciate, and this is how we would express the view. So I think these these cycles take long times to play out. So it's all about you know managing you know your positions over a longer period of time. Do you feel like you naturally think in that way, like uh, spotting? the larger trends? Was that something that you learned in trading in the early days? I think as you get older and I'm 47 now, I think the things that I wish I learned back then um, and know now is that don't be impatient that these, these, these views take time to play out. And I think even to this day, you know, you can take solace or, or peace knowing that these things take time. Everything takes time. Like nothing happens overnight. Building a brand doesn't happen overnight. You know, building an e-commerce business doesn't happen overnight. So I felt like, you know, it, you know, the younger me is looking for in, in, you know, immediate gratification of your view. And it may take, you, know, you could be wrong for a long period of time before you're right. Um, so I think, you know, now I believe that 
things just take time. So whenever I'm building a business, it's, you know, when, whether it's bringing on an investor or um, managing your, your, your colleagues and your employees, you know, expectation management, you should, everyone should be long-term because if you're too short-term, there's a mismatch in your, in your organizational style or your leadership style. So, um, and I think that's something that, you know, the world has suffered from because everyone wants immediate success or immediate gratification or immediate likes on Instagram. So it's, it's a, you know, I think there's a, there's a tendency for us to put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Uh, do you, do you have to work on that or did you have to work on that in the early days? Like, uh, shifting your expectations. Cause I feel like that's a huge advantage if you're able to stay grounded in that view over time and manage the day-to-day fluctuations within it. Yeah, I think it's it, it's a skill set that um, no one really ever taught me. Um, but I think, you know, over time I've learned and I think it's just the gray hair um, that really <laughs> helps me think through like <laughs> that way. And I, and, um, but it also takes down the anxiety, to be honest. Like, I think yeah. there's so much anxiety about like, oh my gosh, how come we didn't sell this much product today? Or how come this creator didn't work with us? And I mean, guess what? There's always someone around the corner that's going to help us or work with us or, you know, another sales event, like give us a break. You know, you can, it's, it's okay to have a, have a, have a pass once in a while. So I think there's, um, a lot to be said about, um, you know, being, you know, honest and real about where your company's going. Um, you know, there's a tendency for, for businesses to over predict and over, um, gross up their revenues just because they want to excite the investor. But to be honest, it's will bite you in the, in the, in the bomb eventually, because if you, if you don't hit them, you know, you're on this, this treadmill and you're continually running up this steep, this inclined treadmill and it becomes, it'll come and get you. So um, yeah, you learn a lot, I think. And I, I think now, um, especially when we go through these very difficult macro environments, you know, that it will pay to be, you know, patient. So, you know, when you're, you're raising capital for your businesses, make sure that, you know, you can last to where, you know, the markets start to turn again. What was the initial uh thesis that you had that that led you to super super ordinary originally and what was the vision the vision um was what was really interesting to me was that we this whole concept of influencer creator as um you know as a as a means to selling product was really interesting to me because we you know, Instagram and, and Facebook were like the the first, you know, I would say wave of um, platforms that really helped, you know, just for, for consumers to discover products, um, you know, rather than going to Macy's or Nordstrom's and, you know, in shopping centers, you know, you could find it online through these, these creators and these influencers. And remember back then content was free like content, everything was just photo sharing apps. Like, look at me here at this restaurant, look at me living this, you know, fake life, but I'm eating this great product. And um, what really like piqued my interest was that in China, they seem to be doing something really different. Like 
they were very much focused on social commerce, like helping brands get into the hands of the consumer by doing things like live streaming. Um, and, you know, one of our live streamers we work with, you know, just to give you an idea how big the business is, that these, these live streamers did one person, just one person over the, you know, the Black Friday equivalent sales. What do you think he sold in over 10 days? Just like in US dollars. I can't even imagine. Uh, for one brand or, no, or a whole bunch of brands, whole color of brands, yeah. Uh, $10 million. More. I'm going to keep drawing. You know. <laughs> uh, $100 million. More. No. $150 million. Oh my God. $300 million. Times, times, More? Times, yeah, over four, almost $4 billion US dollars. What? One person? Yeah. One person. One person. So when you talk about scale and how oh my god my initial 10 million dollar guess horrible <laughs> <laughs> so, so so i'm just telling you like these the world is very different and I, I guess i've had the blessing and the curse of being able to see all these different things living in all these different countries but what tells me is that this the world is a very exciting place when you think about it, that, you know, there is these opportunities and brands can do these things. So, you know, when I started Super Ordinary, I was really interested about like looking at all these, like, how consumers were discovering brands and purchasing products. So, um, you know, we built a business um, originally in China um, where we were helping brands, you know, um, do live streaming or market their brands locally in Chinese to the, to these Chinese consumers. And we built a very successful business there. We have, you know, close to 300 employees in Shanghai. And, um, and a couple of years ago, um, I moved to the U S um, and I was looking at what was going on in America. And I noticed that there wasn't really a, a, a very big social commerce business. And one of the, the, the big ones were, um, you know, QVC and HSN, which is the traditional, you know, flyover states really focusing on, you know, great value, two-for-one deals, you know, these vacuum cleaners, you know, jewelry, watches, you name it. And that was, it's a, it's a big business. But I didn't see anything that really mimicked what happened in, in China. And I was, it kind of like made me even more curious, like, why? Like, why aren't there these big live streaming channels? And what I found out was that culturally, the consumer is different. They don't log on to these platforms to be sold to because, you know, we're going onto Instagram to form a relationship with a creator or an influencer, but we're not going there to be sold, hey, buy this lipstick or buy this, you know, vacuum cleaner. It's, you don't go to Instagram. For that and that's in many ways that's why i think facebook and instagram and many of these social commerce platforms haven't really been able to be successful in e-commerce um so we took it upon ourselves to think about that deeply and it's taken us two years to really think through how we're going to approach this opportunity and um, um i realized that 
the creator is very, very powerful here. You know, there's a lot of this, these inbuilt audiences that a creator would have. So just like you have an inbuilt audience for your podcast, you know, these creators, whether it's Kim Kardashian or whoever they may be, have these large audiences on YouTube or on Snapchat or on Instagram. So um, one way we, we figured this out was let's, let's get into the creator economy. Um, and my intention was to really figure out how do we get into it and work with what I think would be the hardest um, segment of the creator economy, which is the Gen Z market. Um, the Gen Z being, you know, um, you know, the most fickle, the most, um, you know, uh, fussy, you know, they're spending a lot more time on, on TikTok, not on Facebook and Google. Um, so we, we acquired a company called Fanfix um, and Fanfix was founded by Cameron Dallas, Harry Gestetner and Simon Pompan. They're all local LA alumni um, and they built a very successful business building out a content monetization tool for um, the Gen Z creators. So whether that it's a podcast or whether it's a meal plan or it's Instagram photos or exclusive content, it really allowed them to make six, seven figures for these creators um, and, and, and share that content across platforms. So we acquired the business a few months ago and that gave us our on-ramp into the creator economy. So very quickly, we built, we started thinking through like, what does super ordinary really have a competitive advantage over? And that's, we work with, you know, some of the best brands in the world. Um, and we started building out, we just launched two new products, um, software products to help us. One is our own LinkedIn bio. Um, so a competitor to Linktree. It's in its very rough form right now. It's called superlink.io. Um, and that will basically in, 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 uh, inside it will have all the created monetization tools that as a creator, you will get paid the most. So whether it's, you know, monetizing your content through Fanfix, we've just launched a social commerce platform within that called Gala Gala, G-A-L-A-G-A-L-A.com. And that you as a creator can set up a Gala Gala store. You can um, create, um, you can put your products in there. You can purchase products there. It's right now it's only beauty, but we'll be adding clothing very shortly. We'll have over 200 brands. And you can share that content to anyone on your audience on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and we're going to pay you for the number of views you create on that content you've you've made. So if you are using a you know um, a natural deodorant, for example, and um, and you you create a hundred thousand views from your TikTok, we may pay you five hundred dollars for that content, and you may do you know, 30 sales or may pay you, you know, $400. So to, together, you're going to be getting eight, $900 into your account. So we're going to be able to um, allow creators at scale, scale um, brands, which is where we, which is creating content. How did you evaluate expanding the business into the US and making such a big jump after building a uh, substantial team in China originally. And also, uh, I'm assuming you're still, how did you originally evaluate uh, expanding the business into the US and 
and also uh, knowing that you are still managing such a large operation in China that's in a similar uh, vertical, but maybe a slightly different expression of that theory, as you had said before. Yeah, I think the key when we made the decision was that um, we believed to be successful, we had to build capabilities globally for our brands and for our creators. And it, what it meant for us was, um, you know, I think just because I have had the opportunity to live in so many countries, I, I felt very much at home, like moving and living in another country and setting up a business. Um, but I did believe that the creator economy, um, the capital globally is in Los Angeles. Um, and I think that stems from historically as the entertainment industry has now slowly pivoted towards creators and continues to do so. Um, I think it was very important if we were going to take our strategy seriously to be based here. How do how does Super Ordinary partner with brands in the US? Because it looks from the outside like you partner with brands both for the international market opportunities, but also uh, as a sort of accelerator within mm -hmm. the States. Is that true? Yeah, so we have two different business models that we operate. One is where we operate as a distribution partner into global markets and to platforms. So we operate and distribute brands on Amazon, on Tmall, on uh, um, Alibaba's platforms. Um, and that product from the brand building their presence on these platforms. So we have a business where we build brands on Amazon here in the US. Um, so that's one part of our business. The second part, how we partner with brands is that we connect brands um, to the consumers using creators. Um, and that's through our Gala Gala um, platform. Um, essentially, we are creating content using, our creators are creating content and driving traffic to the Gala Gala website. And then we will basically connect with brands and they will drop ship the product to the end consumer. So it's a customer acquisition tool for these brands to get new customers. How, how did you initially, uh, if you're comfortable with me asking this, how did you initially finance the, the business? Uh, and, and how do you personally manage the complexity of, of entering so many different areas within one specific vertical? Because it's almost like, uh, to me, from the outside, you're operating like a, it's probably more of a, a brand platform, but like an agency style business where you're operating the brand on these platforms and then also connecting them into the, the creator economy. I'm curious how you personally manage that and, and if part of that was the way that you built and set up the business from the beginning. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think from us, um, I was very lucky enough to bring in some great investors along the way that allowed us to um, make the decisions we've had. Um, you know, we have a very supportive investor um, group that um, believe in the vision that um, we're talking about. And, um, you know, I think it's, um, you know, my the way that I feel comfortable in, in building these businesses is that 
it's all about hiring very seasoned, successful team um, operators who, um, you know, I like to delegate a lot of responsibility to. Um, and I think that's helped me along the way in terms of making sure that we can manage so many different geographies. Um, so in each country, we have a, you know, the, the, the local CEO um, and he or she will have a team of people that supports them. Um, we, we have a global COO um, who, you know, keeps all the trains on the tracks and um, it's a very, you know, and I think, you know, the working remote is just a time zone um, issue. So, you know, we're able to connect with the local markets. Um, um, we can connect with the local markets um, in the mornings or in the evenings. So, um, you know, it allows us to do this from anywhere. So the world's become a lot smaller in the sense of being able to manage um, these businesses. But I'm, you know, I think it's, it's, it's you know, in LA is um, nice because, you know, in the afternoon it's, you know, Shanghai morning. Um, but um, yeah, it's, 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 I think it's, it's really working remote's helped us a lot. And do you, do you view the business like long-term as an opportunity to one day uh, get into in, in some form launching brands built by your group? Do you, view it as like uh as more of an amplifier for existing brands yeah i you know we've we've, we've toyed around with that for a long time um because we thought you know where do we want to spend our time and i think for our from our perspective we we prefer um um you know working with other people's brands um for now um it's just because it's a lot of work. And as we talked earlier, you know, you have to be very, very patient when you're building your brand. Um, and it, in my opinion, you know, any brand, any good brand takes at least five years, if not longer to build. Um, and that's a lot of investment behind it. So I think where we're looking at now is um, towards more, um, social commerce opportunities and helping other brands reach and be discovered by um, their audiences by using creators. Looking back since starting the business, I know things have changed quite drastically as you've expanded. Do you feel like there's uh, any like big pivots or surprises within your original theory and and the observation around social commerce and in China originally, do you feel like the social commerce opportunity could bridge into the U.S. in the same form that it is in China, or is it just a completely different kind of form of uh, digesting content? Yeah, I think it's going to be um, it's going to be certainly different. I do think live streaming has a place in the U.S., but not to the same scale. Um, but I do think that um, the difference in the U.S. versus China is that. Um, we should be thinking about creators at scale, not just the top, you know, the Mr. Beast of the world. It's going to be, you know, the 49.9 million other creators out there who are, you know, making, you know, you know, recipes on, on Instagram and TikTok or, you know, doing meal plans or fitness plans. Like we really have to think much more broader. Um, and I think that, um, 
you know, it's all in the US, the consumer is extremely smart. They know when a creator is selling something that's been paid for um, by a brand. So you have to be very, very authentic. Um, but I think what we can do as a company at Super Ordinary is really give these creators the best tools possible for them to understand their audience and help them sell products which um, the audience will be interested in. So, you know, our, our vision is that these creators are going to be looking at the data that we give them and maybe they'll be saying, you know, they should be selling, you know, garden tools instead of, you know, kitchen equipment and we can help them, you know, sell those products to the, the, their followers. But also we can give them the tools to make their own podcasts and sell and monetize that podcast across our platforms. So we're really thinking through from the creator's lens, like how to how, how social commerce should work. And, you know, just as you have your podcast, you may have a video podcast and one day you want to start promoting a coffee that you've, you know, you, you like, and people will start purchasing it because they like you and they like how you think and talk. So it's really about, you know, thinking through like, the different ways that you know the the audience engages with the you know each of these um media assets um but yeah i think it's really exciting do you feel like your uh do you feel like your main challenge is thinking through how to empower creators to to know, understand their audience and earn through their creativity or is it to enable brands to better utilize creators in the way that people are looking at media today in order to drive business i think it's i think it's a bit of both i think you know the way that i think about these things is like what problem are we really trying to solve um and i think the problem we're trying to solve is helping creators um earn active and passive income and getting paid the most. Um, we know that creators, 90% of their revenue comes from brand deals. Um, and many of the creators, 99% of the creators in the world have no access to brands. So, you know, on our Gala Gala platform, we can give them hundreds of brands to work with um, and earn, earn commission from. So we're trying to solve, solve everything from the creator's lens. Whereas before we were trying to solve everything from the brand's lens, like helping a brand sell a product in a foreign market. But now we're trying to really think through the creator because the creator is the one that's going to cause, you know, the product to be sold. So we're trying to really think about like, what can we possibly do to make sure that they're earning the most possible money that they can. So fanfix, many of our creators are earning six, seven figures now. And that's because we've been able to really give them the tools to con connect with their audiences. It's fascinating. Are you still, do you feel like the business in China is still focused on the brand side of it? And that, that creates a competitive advantage uh, in the expansion, knowing that you have the brand relationship and also the understanding from the brand's perspective of what's important? Yeah, I think in China, you know, it was a different skill set. It's about being able to communicate and localize the product for these brands because, you know, we have brands like amazing brands like Biosense and Olaplex. These are huge brands. But, you know, I think where we've been really successful is being able to localize them and make them feel Chinese. 
um, to the consumer. Um, and we work with hundreds of thousands of creators in China, but, you know, because we don't have the software solutions there, it's hard for us to monetize these creators in the same way we do in the U S however, um, you know, we, our business there continues to grow very quickly over there because there's the market size is just that big. Um, so it's a very different business model, but at the same time, the common thread is we're using creators to drive, um, our you know, our commerce. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like the learnings from the business in China directly kind of feed into building the creator side in the US. Yeah. Well, I think the the mistake that we've seen some people make is that they saw live streaming in China. So they set up these live streaming businesses here in the US and the majority of them haven't done it done well. And it's just because it's a different cultural cultural experience so i mean that was a learning that we realized was that you know selling your product online um you know just think about your own experience like if someone came on with a video of selling that selling you um you know whatever it is a toothbrush or anything you know what are the chances that you're going to actually click and buy it um it's not natural to us here in the west so you've got to we've got to think about like how you know, psychologically, do you make a purchase? Do you first discover it once, you see it twice, you see a friend use it, then you go to Target or do you, you know, search it on Amazon? So there's, there's so many different paths to discovery here in the US. Um, and that's why I think we think very carefully and deeply, like how does that, how is it going to work in the future? But our view is that, you know, creating content, getting paid for driving awareness and also, you know, converting of sales that will grow over time. Um, but going back to our original thesis is it, it can take a long time. So we have to be patient. Yeah, I feel like this trend has been going on for quite some time already. It, uh, in some ways, like still feels new, but I always think about how, uh, I don't know why I always bring this up, but the um, Friends reunion show on Netflix I remember seeing it. I didn't watch it, but I saw the uh, like image for it. And I just thought like so crazy how back then there were however many people on that show, like seven actors that almost accumulated all of the wealth within TV during that time because there were so few options versus now if you have a hit show on Netflix or whatever streaming platform, you're one of like hundreds, thousands of options. And I don't think that that same setup can happen anymore these days. Maybe it can, but there's far more along with it. I know. I think that the introduction of Netflix of this one price per month destroyed, you know, Hollywood in many ways because it, it almost became, you know, the rise of the the Tom Cruises of this world and who so forth make, you know, millions per picture that automatically went out the window because making content just didn't have its payback. So, um, you know, if you, it's a sign of the time. So, you know, we have to think differently to, to, to succeed in e-commerce these days. And, um, and that's why I think the next, the future is going to be really exciting. I think we've 
you know, one of my views is that we've lived through, you know, hundreds of years of consolidation of businesses getting bigger and bigger. And now we're going through this deconsolidation phase where, you know, things are, you know, whether it's, you know, finance with, you know, crypto or whether it's, you know, all these different other industries, they're all being disrupted. But I think that ultimately these these individuals, these creators are becoming the new smaller medium-sized enterprises of this world. Like you yourself can have selling products, you can sell services, you can, you know, monetize your content and it all, can all happen from your mobile phone. And that's really, you know, spurning like this whole new industry where people don't want to work for these big organizations anymore and want to um, be fulfilled, not just financially, but, you know, personally through, through their own endeavors. So I think it's going to be really exciting to watch how this, this, you know, these industries, you know, become more and more, um, you know, the, the creative market grow and this, and it's just beginning. Do you feel like that same trend will be true in terms of brands? Like there'll be more, smaller brands specialized within categories so one of my views is that brands are going to be reconstituted and what i mean by that is that you know the traditional brands in like the grocery aisle are going to slowly be transformed um i think the younger generation the gen z the gen alpha um they're quickly realizing they don't want to buy the same Heinz ketchup that their grandfather used to buy. They want to buy, you know, Mr. Beast feastable chocolates and, and, you know, Emma Chamberlain's coffee. And, and I think that's going to continue. I think, um, you know, what does it really mean to drink, um, you know, some of these soft drinks now we're seeing KSI and Logan Paul come up with, you know, energy drinks, which are skyrocketing. So, I think that these types of brands are continue to um, to grow. Um, we're going to see so many more new brands. Um, I don't think if you if my view is like if one percent of the brands in in a supermarket are from creators, I think that could grow to twenty five to forty percent over the next ten years. And just think about that at scale. Um, so you know, there's a lot to lot changing on that side. In the terms of like you know some categories, I think there's some categories are very saturated, you know, do we need another celebrity skincare brand? I, I don't, I don't think so, but there, you know, but, but do we get a lot more creative brands? Yeah. So um, there's, there's certainly going to be a lot more new brands coming to market. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I definitely uh, have noticed, I mean, obviously noticed the same trend, but it's, it's interesting to talk about into the future and what it means for, uh, more of the traditional brands and also uh, even like the distribution channels opening up to those creator brands that's still I think uh, a changing landscape um, yeah I guess last last question I, I asked you before but maybe sandwiched it in for like four other questions uh, do you feel like there's been any main learning or uh, anything that you've learned since launching the business business initially that if you could you could uh go back and and at least give yourself some advice from at the beginning um yeah that's a really good question i think the the one thing i wish i did 
and you know I made a lot of mistakes in in all my companies like I realized was um you know hire, hiring the right people from the get-go um I think there's always a tendency to hire friends just because they're there and they're you know they're in the room or you know I think spend some time building your your senior management team focus on you know if you use a headhunter the reason why headhunters are expensive is because they do a good job typically and they bring you the best possible candidates um and i think that's 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 a really good um you know lesson uh, for any startup or person who's building a, a business is making sure that you bring in because it's very easy to get into bed and hire someone but to get out and and separate um a business it's it's very painful and exhausting so you know it's the it's it's making sure you get the right people to work with you because they're all they're the ones that are going to be living and breathing your idea and vision for the for the foreseeable future i totally agree i feel like when i asked you the question uh around how you manage so many different operations or avenues that you guys are exploring it's like the most obvious answer i guess hire people that already know how to do what they're doing and trust that they're going to be able to get it done that's right no no definitely. i feel like the, the long-term view though is like the challenge for most people to get around the urge to make quick reactionary decisions no absolutely i think i think that's that's i I really appreciate, you know, having amazing people who work with me at the senior level who can really drive um, your vision. It's just like you can you make one mistake with a weak person and everything comes crumbling down. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's the key. I mean, you know, we have we have close to 700 employees now um, and there's no way I could do it without incredible management teams surrounding me. Well, thank you again for taking the time to hop on. I would love to to keep in touch. Definitely, anytime. Anytime you're at Penelope's swing by the office.
Bread, receive. Bread, receive. Bread, receive.